I want to hear the personal side of why they're doing what they're doing. That's the big thing I like to hear. And often I'd surprise how many people just dive right into their presentation and talk about the business. But for me, it's why. Why are you doing this? You are listening to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur, a podcast for founders with ambitious ideas, venture capital investors, and other early believers tell you relatable, insightful, and authentic stories to help you realize your vision. Welcome to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur. Today's guest is Mika Salmi, a good friend of mine. He's a serial entrepreneur, a successful angel investor, and now a venture capital investor at Lakestar. He's a managing partner at Lakestar. Mika invests in consumer gaming and media companies and at early stage startups. Let's talk to him to learn more about his journey as an entrepreneur and how he evaluates entrepreneurs now as a venture capital investor. Mika, welcome to the SureShot Entrepreneur. Thank you, Gopi. Nice to be here. Nice to talk to you. Tell me about yourself, starting with your journey in the media industry. Sure. I think I have a, a fairly unusual background. I was born in Finland. Then with my family, I, I moved a lot. I was moved a lot. And I went to school in the U.S. As you can tell, I have an American accent. And I had a passion for media as a teenager. And I was lucky enough to find my way via first working at a bank as a programmer, but found my way into the music industry. I was in the music industry for about eight years doing everything from computer programming type stuff early on to signing some pretty well-known bands to doing international marketing. I worked at independent labels. I worked in Paris at EMI and I worked at Sony in New York. That was a big part of my early career. In the middle of that, I went to INSEAD, the alma mater where I know you went to Gopi. So I slotted INSEAD in there first. I could also say that I leaving INSEAD, I thought I was going to leave the media industry, but I ended up going back into it. I worked for Sony in New York, and then I discovered the internet. I'm not like Al Gore or something. That's how they found the internet. <laughs> I, 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 I was, my eyes were awoken to the internet in 1994 when I asked for a Mosaic browser made by Mark Andreessen onto my computer at Sony. I was the only one in the entire building there at 550 Madison Avenue with an internet connection because I was just fascinated by it. For me, it wasn't that unusual because I'd been a programmer. I'd been doing dial-up services and, and email and stuff, but, but having a web browser was a whole new thing. Uh, that launched my life into technology in a big way, in, in, into the internet. You were an early technology geek in the media world, but how did you become an entrepreneur? What was one of your first startup adventures? When I was in high school, I had my own business teaching windsurfing on Lake Michigan in Chicago. I also, all through university, I did all kinds of businesses, but I organized lots of things that I had to uh, raise money for and did the things. I've always had that entrepreneurial side to me since I was young. When did you start angel investing and what do you like about that? I started my first company in 98. I exited in 2006 and it was right around that time, maybe a little before I was living in San Francisco. I, I just had a lot of contact with a lot of other entrepreneurs. I was fortunate. My first company was funded by Sequoia Capital and by Michael Moritz. I attended a lot of Sequoia events and Sequoia would bring together entrepreneurs. So I started thinking about angel investing. I don't think I actually started right then, but then I became a Sequoia scout in 2009. I was on the first scouts. Right before that, I had done a few angel investments, but then I really took to it uh, in a much bigger way once I became a Sequoia Scout. 
You spent earlier years of your career in the media industry, and then you became an entrepreneur. Then you slowly switched to the investing side, started building an angel investment portfolio. Why did you choose to make investment your full-time focus uh, as a venture capital investor? What was attractive to you? I had this realization probably four years ago now. I was realizing that I wasn't going to start another company. I started four companies. It's such a journey. It's so difficult starting a company. Obviously, the fundraising isn't easy, but just the up and down of it, the hiring of people, it's just a very difficult journey. And I, I kept doing it over and over because I, I, I love being creative. I love the whole creative side of building a company. I was a person with lots of ideas. I think I've written over 50 business plans in the last 20 years. I'm always coming up with an idea. And so it was really suited to me, entrepreneurship. But I, I thought to myself, I just don't know if I'm ready for that journey again. And then I made a realization that most of the things I had done involved finding talent and discovering new ideas. Even in the record business, I would think about new artists or new musical ideas or even new ways to promote artists. And I thought investing is exactly what I've been doing throughout my career, whether I've been in music, I was in film. Even when I had my, my own company, we had a games business and we would look for new game developers and new game ideas. Looking for entrepreneurs and companies is very similar. You have to find the talent. You have to really believe in the talent. You have to believe in what market they're going after. And in terms of, okay, is this a viable thing? It's not too dissimilar to a band in the music industry or, or an artist. Okay, are they actually producing something that's going to resonate with an audience? And the final was that they're building a product and the product is something that is that you're bringing to the market. And so I thought, this, oh, this sounds a lot like what I've been doing my entire career and so looking for entrepreneurs is, is very similar and it really excites me just because of that. But on top of that, I, I'm very curious about learning new things. And when you meet entrepreneurs, you always learn something new and you're exposed to so many different ideas and sectors that you would never be exposed to if you were just working at a company or running your own company. So I, I really started getting excited about it. But I was somewhat biased early on. I was like, oh, I'm an entrepreneur. I don't want to sit the other side. So that was, it took a little while for me to think about who I am what I really enjoy, and why it's actually a very good fit for me. I haven't looked back since I made, made that realization. I was like, okay, this is actually exactly what I should be doing. So you come with a perspective of how do I search for top talent? How do I spot them? How do I groom them? How do I give them the opportunity to unleash potential in them? And that's the same perspective that you use as an investor. Exactly. Yeah. What do you focus on for your investments at Lakestar? I have focused on media and gaming because that's what I know very well and also consumer. So I am not the one who's looking at uh, the deep tech technical things or even fintech or any of these things. I am focused very much on what I know and that's how I angel invested too. I realized I made some mistakes early on angel investing where I invested in someone I knew or I thought was a really cool idea but I realized I don't actually know what they're doing. There's no way for me to help them even. Investing something that I know, at least I know that because I feel like actually I might use the product or I can learn about it and be very interested in knowing about it. So it's just too much of a stretch. And I think by doing things I know and that I've experienced it, I can be very helpful to the entrepreneur. Now, having said that, I'm managing partners. So I get involved with every deal. We're invested in a rocket company, for example, in a, in a quantum computer company. I love learning about these things. I love being involved and having the perspective of really thinking about who the founders are, the entrepreneurs, maybe about their product. What are they actually doing in these businesses where I actually have something to say? I can't actually assess a quantum computing company on a technical level at all 
or even they're probably their go-to-market, I'm probably not that great at. But there's some other things I can really look at. So I'm glad that I'm able to do that. But I don't lead those deals because I feel like I would be a pretender to go in there and try to lead those deals because I wouldn't have the expertise to really make a good assessment if it's a good company or not. What stages do you like to meet companies? What are the kind of qualities you look for at that stage? We at Lakestar, we invest any everything. We actually have a small angel fund. So we invest from pre-seed all the way to IPO. We even have a SPAC. We had the, the first European tech SPAC, which launched in January. We do everything. We have a growth fund, which invests 15 to 50 million. We have an early stage fund, which is, again, it has this angel fund, has a small seed fund. And the sweet spot there is uh, Series A, which is we like to invest five to 15 million. So we, we see the whole spectrum. Again, in my role, I, I'm involved in the whole spectrum. Personally, I like the earliest stages. Maybe not as much as I used to, the angel pre-seed. I, I still get involved with that, but I really like to see when a company, they actually have a product that I can touch and feel, that I can play with. That's my preferred moment. Then I get a sense of how is their design sense? How are they actually thinking about their customer? Is this team really understanding the way they want to bring this to market? So I find that more around seed is my sweet spot, seed and series A. Series A being hopefully when they have reached product market fit and they're starting to scale. That's for me. But again, in my role, I actually look at the whole spectrum of investments. So you're stage agnostic and you look across the spectrum. I'm really curious, how is the market today compared to when you were fundraising for your own companies 10, 15, 20 years ago, when you were building your own startups and you were in the fundraising process, uh, meeting VCs? What are some things that have changed significantly? Hmm, that's an interesting question. Late 90s, when I was first raising money, a lot of VCs were financial people. They were less operational. They weren't former entrepreneurs. They had less of a feel for for what an entrepreneur needed to do to build a company. They would get excited by a market. They would get excited by, by the team. But they and but the problem was often then that they didn't have a lot to contribute once they've invested. They were just capital often. Not every time. There were there actually were some very good VCs who, who weren't just capital. But that was more the perspective. In the mid two thousands, late two thousands, when Andreessen Horowitz launched two ex entrepreneurs, they really pushed the idea of like we're going to be founder friendly. We are entrepreneurs. And seeing a shift in the VC world to entrepreneur-friendly, founder-friendly VCs, actually VCs who are founder, former, former founders. And that has continued. Similarly, I'm in Europe now. And, and in Europe, I think it was just a few years ago that I think 8% of VCs were former entrepreneurs. I don't know the number is now, but I know it's growing quite fast. And so this mode of having former entrepreneurs EVCs is definitely a, a trend, and I think it, it really speaks maturity of the of the venture world. Also, when I was originally raising money, there weren't as many VCs. You had to really pick and choose very carefully and make sure that you somehow got the attention of, of the VCs who might be interested in what you were building, because not all of them wanted to do things like media, for example. So there was lots less choice uh, in terms of who you pitched. Yeah, the variety of funds and the plethora of capital available is uh, significantly better than what it was 15, 20 years ago. It must have been a huge struggle for you in those days. Things are a lot easier in many ways for entrepreneurs now. Oh, for sure. For my angel round of my first company, I, I pitched 87 people. <laughs> I remember we had many near-death experiences because we couldn't raise money at some points, but that's what we had to do. I, I don't know if entrepreneurs now are spoiled because there's more choices and there's more people to pitch, but it definitely was slim pickings. Often I was living in Seattle with my first startup flying to San Francisco constantly because Seattle did not have many VCs at all. I think one or two at the time that there were notes at all. How did you manage those near-death experiences? 
What did you do to take care of the situation? Can you give an example? <laughs> Each one has a long story. Creativity. <laughs> My biggest near-death experience was in 2000. This is fundraising near-death experience. I had a near-death experience because of market near-death experience. That's when the 2001 crash happened. Or people say it was 2000. It was spring of 2001. But the fall of 2000, I needed money. The, the company, we were 135 people. We were doing well in terms of revenue, but we were definitely burning a lot of money. And I had a few offers to invest in the company. I had this company called PCCW from Hong Kong. And then I had another one, which I'm not going to mention, but I had, I had a couple offers, but they were incredibly punitive. And they were buying out my previous shareholders and leaving the, the management team with a, with a raw deal, but they, they knew we were on our knees. I started thinking creatively and, and I found a merger target, which was this company called Shockwave in San Francisco. And that's how I ended up in San Francisco. I creatively said, I thought to myself, well, maybe I can either M&A, buy some company, or I'll merge with someone, or I'll, I'll figure out a way to get out of this because the funding was it was drying up fast. Also, because the 2000s, that's when the markets really started going sour then. They really crashed in March of 2001, but they were already going sour by the kind of fall of 2000. So there was very few choices anymore for funding. I, I had to think creatively how I could keep my company surviving and end up being a merger. And what was the rest of the story? How did it play out? <laughs> what happened to the company? This is a long story, but after the merger was done, the combined companies had $6 million in revenue in Q4 of 2000. In Q1 2001, we had $2 million in revenue. In Q2 of 2001, we had $1 million in revenue. And the merged company was 350 people. This is not sustainable. And we had about, I think we had the merged company, we had our investors all put money into the merger. I think we had $10 million in the bank, but we were burning fast. I think we're burning probably a million and a half a month or something. The issue was not that we were losing audience. We still had a top 20 website. We were very, very popular, but we were an advertising-based business and advertising completely crashed on the internet at that point, partly because a lot of the advertisers were other internet companies and they had no more capital. But even the big companies, the AT&Ts and the consumer brands who were advertising, they also were scared of the internet now because there was always bad news about you know, Webvan and eToys, all these companies going out of business. Everybody was going out of business. And so the internet had a bad name. When we saw the numbers going this direction, we started thinking, okay, we have to start laying people off. And my board recommended we lay people off every two weeks in these tranches and et cetera, et cetera. And I said, that's not going to work. If I slay people off over many months, no, no one's going to stick around or people are going to have terrible morale. They're going to think that the next person who can be laid off is them. And so they won't have any motivation at all. So what we did, we came up with a very unique solution, which was in June of 2001, we laid everybody off, including myself. We basically fired everybody, all 300, actually 335 people. And then we said, there are 32 jobs because we had done a calculation saying, what can we afford with our current revenue level and our money in the bank. And we said, okay, there are 32 jobs. And we closed offices in Tokyo, London, New York, Dallas, LA, Seattle, We Chicago. <laughs> we had so many different offices. They're all mainly sales offices. We closed offices and we went to all of our creditors and said, okay, wait, so, so going back to the, the, the employees. So we fired everyone, said 32, and we said, everyone leaving gets two months severance, which was extremely generous. Most companies would give you two weeks, maybe, or they would go against a wall and have nothing left and give people nothing. So we said, we'll give you two months severance, but the deal is you have to work for the next one to two weeks and completely organize your jobs so that these 32 people who are going to be left 
can still function. This, so this company can still function. We had a very complicated business. And so we had to somehow button things up into a functioning package for 32 people. People who wanted to stay, there were 32 jobs. You could apply for them. You would get double pay for three months. The idea behind double pay was we want to make it more attractive than leaving, which was two months severance. We also wanted to give them a little extra just in case we did hit a brick wall because we didn't know where the business was going to go. We could hit a brick wall this June now. By September, we thought, well, it could be a zero now. We wanted to make sure we gave them their severance ahead of time, essentially. We made a very generous offer to these 32 people. Out of the 32 people, we probably had about a dozen that we knew we wanted. These are like technical people. We had to have them. So we pre-discussed with them a little bit. We had to be careful how we communicated. We somehow managed to make sure that they, they were interested. The other ones were basically up for grabs of jobs. And then we also went to our creditors and said, we will pay you five cents on the dollar. This was big creditors. <laughs> Oracle. This is Oracle. This was landlords. This was small creditors. It was the poor woman that was watering our, our plants in our office. We went to all of them and we had 110 creditors, 110. And we said, we'll pay you five cents on the dollar. And someone we negotiated the 10 cents, but nobody sued us. Nobody came after us because the environment was so toxic that everyone was going out of business. They just said, look, I'll take whatever I can from you guys. You guys are dead. And so that was what we did. We had 32 people. Our traffic stayed the same. And then the final thing we did is we launched a paid product. We were the first ones to start selling games to consumers on the internet. We sold a game, which was Bejeweled, became somewhat a candy crush back then. 1999, we set up a Yahoo store, which cost $100 a month to have a storefront on Yahoo. It was terrible interface, but it did the job and we started selling games. And lo and behold, people bought them. We had 30 million people coming to our website. A lot of people love these games and they didn't want to play them online. They want to play them offline and they wanted some certain features. So we, we sold them. Go forward till Q1 of 2002. Lo and behold, we're profitable <laughs> as a company. Wow. Oh, the final, the final kind of funny thing was that because we wanted to save money, one of our big shareholders was Macromedia, which became Adobe. They offered us free office space for our 32 people. To catch was, it was their training center, which was in the basement. It had no windows. So we moved into this free office with no windows. We jokingly called it Las Vegas because <laughs> we couldn't see the time of day it was or the weather or anything. It's kind of like Las Vegas. You don't know what time of day it is. You just have glaring lights. So we called it Vegas. And we actually were in that basement office for over two years. We saved a lot of money and we did we did well. But that was one of many near-death experiences. That was probably the most severe. <laughs> that is indeed an incredible story of a near-death experience. You went from 300 plus employees to 10 times less and you had creative ways of managing productivity and you came out on the other end of the tunnel and yeah. the company was profitable. That's fantastic. And it became so known that in 2008 when Sequoia had their famous RIP Good Times slide deck about like, okay, the financial crisis hits, watch out. I actually gave a presentation there on how to manage layoffs, <laughs> what to do and what not to do. And it was my big slide was the death spiral. Don't lay off people slowly because everyone's going to lose productivity. I didn't recommend to do what I did, but just there's other ways to do it besides because every two weeks you lay off 20 people or something. Yeah. That's a death by a thousand cuts and it's demoralizing for the whole company. Yeah. Yeah. Now, coming back to your investment side of things, what questions do you ask when you meet entrepreneurs, especially in the first one or two meetings? What are you looking for? I actually see what they bring up, but often I have to ask people, I'd say, tell me your story. Why did you start this? What's the reason for it? I want to understand, is it from a pain point, passion, 
some sort of historical thing that they were working on, an opportunity they just saw in the markets and why. But I want to hear the personal side of why they're doing what they're doing. That's the big thing I like to hear. And often I'm surprised how many people just dive right into their presentation. They talk about the business. But for me, it's why. Why are you doing this? It's the motivation that you want to see. What was the genesis of the story? What got them triggered to start thinking about this problem? And why are they personally passionate about it? How long does it take for you to make up your mind about an investment from the first meeting to the, the time when you say, yes, I'm interested in investing? This is not always true, but I tend to have an arc to my desire to invest. What will happen is that I will get either somewhat excited or very excited after the first one or two meetings. Inevitably, I do the research, I talk to other people, I do whatever it might be, some due diligence, and I start to lose interest, or not lose interest, I start to lose faith. I start to think, oh, and I find the faults. The question then is after I find these faults, whether it be one fault, 20 faults, it doesn't matter. And I find something that starts to bother me. I'm like, oh, I don't know about this. I don't know. And then either I turn the corner and I realize those aren't faults. That's, that's fine. This entrepreneur is able to get beyond them. Sometimes it's because they answer the questions around the faults very well, or it's because just the way I think about it. I think every entrepreneur is a good entrepreneur can can convince you of anything. I, I try not to let the convincing be the reason I, I suddenly turn the corner, but it's often just something clicks with me. And I go, oh, I actually, I like it. Then my interest rises again, and that generally then turns into an investment. So by me having these almost dark moments around it, that gives me more confidence that I've actually really thought it through. If I don't have a dark moment, if it's just like a, a linear line up, 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 like, yeah, this is great, great, great. I, I Actually, those aren't the ones that I usually invest in or, or even something else happens. I'm just like, oh, I don't know. It just doesn't have the depth to me of, of the reason for it. Most of the time, because I don't invest in everything, most of the time those questions I have around something, they just continue to linger. And I'm like, no, I don't think so. Let's wait for a later round. Maybe they'll figure some things out. Maybe something will change or maybe my opinion will change. Often it's like, I blame myself. It's just my, my view is just isn't quite the, aligned with what the entrepreneur is pitching. So it looks like you want the entrepreneur to convert you from a non-believer to a believer. And there will be skepticism on your side, but if they have stories and examples that show you why you should have faith in the idea, that gets you moving to the positive side. Yeah. Some of the most interesting businesses are ones that you are a non-believer because it's, it's such an outlier or there's so many issues around you. Like, huh, this is a problem. Sometimes those problems are insurmountable, but sometimes you're like, okay, these are the outlier investments are the ones that you think are the hardest ones, the most difficult to really believe. That is true. Uh, and I, I really enjoy that part of the journey as well. Walking through the whole process of how the world might be and seeing the vision of the entrepreneur, what could happen if everything lined up the way they describe it. Exactly. And then we come back to the assumptions to say, is it realistic? What tips would you give to entrepreneurs in their preparation to meet a VC? I recommend this to our entrepreneurs, our founders and our portfolio is that when they're going to do a fundraise, they should really be strategic about it. They should really think about where am I trying to get to with this fundraise in terms of what's my type of investor I want. I recognize that a lot of, especially very early ones, they want just any VC, just give me any VC. But if you're strategic about it, you start thinking about things like, okay, I want my pitch to really resonate with these people. Sometimes you actually should be tailoring your pitch to 
the actual VC. The more you know about the VC, their background or the firm's interests, you can tailor your pitch to really speak to them in terms of what they're interested in. And the way to do this sometimes is, is obviously you could read all about it on, on you know LinkedIn on the internet about the firm and the people. But another thing I think is important is to practice and refine your pitch. And so what I often tell entrepreneurs is that if if you have a list of fifteen or twenty investors you want to talk to, tranche them. Have two to five ones that you'd love for them to invest, but they're maybe friendlier to you. Or they are ones that you don't mind if you burn them off, I guess you would say. And you should pitch these people, sit back and go, okay, what did I learn from these pitches? How do I change my presentation and my story to really be better? And then the next ones, hopefully are the VCs you really want, the next five to 10 pitches. Those you've learned from the first ones, but then you've also hopefully refined it in terms of who you're talking to so you can really hit their hot buttons, ideally. The more you go in there prepared in this way, I think is better. I'm always surprised at how generic some pitches are and how unprepared entrepreneurs are to pitch. Yeah, entrepreneurs do a lot of research on customers. They do a lot of due diligence on employees before they hire them. But they don't seem to do a lot of research on investors before they meet. I wonder if it's a topic that they are not really investing time in because they don't have sources to find information or they're just wired that way that oh here's a money guy i want to go build the business and fundraising is just a transactional experience and that probably hurts them yeah it could even be in the beginning in the chit chat of the meeting where you can try to ask them a few questions about some of their investments or what they're thinking about and so when you're giving the pitch you can emphasize parts that you you heard earlier them talking about it doesn't even have to be crazy deep research ahead of it, which is better, obviously, but you can also learn a lot just directly in that meeting. What are some things that are not done right in venture? If you were to change one thing about the venture capital industry, what would you change? I think there's lack of transparency. It's unclear why and how things are done by firms or by the overall industry. There's just not enough information out there. There's more now than there ever has been. You can find term sheets, you can find examples of pitch decks. There's so much out there. It's incredible. But still, I think there's a lot of mystery around what is the process. You'll hear, you know, VC will tell them their process, but there's still not enough of an understanding to why decisions are made the way they're made. Yeah, my hope is that a podcast like the like Shot Entrepreneur will demystify that process and make it more transparent for everyone. To be honest, I think part of it is because it's different every time and there isn't always opportunity to be transparent, but the critical things that we try to do, and I try to tell all of our partners or even our associates, anyone who's communicating with entrepreneurs, give people honest feedback. Try to tell them why. Why did we didn't engage? Is it because their their CAC wasn't wrong or something, or is we just don't like the market segment? Sometimes it's so easy to fall back and to say, oh, you're just too early, or you're not in a sector I'm interested in or something, but like try to give some honest feedback because hopefully that'll then help them on their next pitch. Because the reality is that I think every VC wants every entrepreneur to find money. If it's not from them, from someone else, they should get an investment. We want everyone to succeed. So, but the question is, how do you help them even if you're not going to invest? But that's a little bit of a risk for you. You live in the world where you say 99 no's before you say one yes. So when you try to give feedback, the recipient of the feedback needs to be ready to listen to the feedback and take some actions out of it. And often if you tell the entrepreneur that your baby is ugly, it's really difficult for them to 
take that in a positive stride and make changes. And that could hurt your reputation. And uh, if it's misinterpreted in a way that uh, doesn't reflect on you well, that's a risk that you're taking, isn't it? Well, I don't think I would. (laughs) You're never going to insult them. It's about being constructive in what you say. So I I find that 70, 80% of the time, I I get an incredibly nice email back saying, oh, thank you so much for all this, blah, blah, blah. And often they will keep in touch with me and tell me how they're progressing on some of the things I, I mentioned. The hard part is that often it's just one of these things where just your gut feel, yeah, the metrics are okay, interesting market, not a bad product, but I'm just not feeling it. That's part of it. There has to be a connection with the entrepreneur, which has been very surprising about the life of Zoom in the last year is that ability to make that connection, even though you're not actually meeting face-to-face, it's worked fine as far as I can tell. I mean, we made quite a few investments and you're able to make that connection. There is that because I think every VC knows that they're going to be in business with these people for a long time, but it's very important to make that connection. Have you made any investments uh, without meeting the entrepreneur in the past year because of the work from home situation? Can you give an example of uh, one or two companies? Quite a few. (laughs) It's it's actually a pretty impressive list of uh, companies that we've made investments without meeting them. I just give you a a very small one, which was a games company called Trees Please, founded by a woman named Laura Carter. We had heard about her because she's doing this for good games idea. It's a casual game that when you play it, rather than just getting points or some silly tokens or something, if you get to a certain level, they'll plant trees for you. They have this do-good aspect to it. So when you're playing, you feel like, oh, I'm actually doing good because the better I do, the more trees I get to plant. Or if I'm buying power-ups in the game or I'm doing something, sharing the game, there's something positive happening. And I think it was right in the beginning of COVID when we met her through Zoom. And it might've been because of just the atmosphere of like, now we're locked down. What's going on? Is the world going negative? But her pitch just resonated right at the right time. And she chose a game category that we were curious about, which is um, Merge Games, which is this hybrid of match three with matching three things, but also putting two things together to create something new. It's called a Merge Game. It was a new category of games. The combination of the timing of actually we were feeling pretty down on the world. Here's someone with a positive message on it, plus the game category that works. I think she hit us at the right time. It was just a seed investment for us, but never met her, but just just hit hit the right buttons for us. It's an early bet on a very interesting idea indeed. Uh, I want to switch to the final part of our conversation and ask you about your community involvement. Is there a nonprofit organization you are passionate about? Which one? Well, it's a very large nonprofit, INSEAD. Where I went to INSEAD. I, I always laughed that I don't know why they took me in. I think they took me in because I was from Finland and, and I was the only Finn there. So I was a little bit of a diversity candidate for them. But it, like many INSEAD people talk about it, really, it changed my life. It changed my trajectory of what I was doing completely. And so I've been giving back to INSEAD since I left there, whether it's been early on teaching classes or doing other things. Early on, actually, I was part of a West Coast Council and I joined the board of directors and helped uh, launch uh, the NCAD San Francisco facility. Anytime NCAD asked me to do anything, including Gopi, you asked me to teach a class with you, I I say yes. It is because I I see myself in some of the students who are really ambitiously wanting to do something new and different, and they don't necessarily always have a clear opportunity. I didn't necessarily have a clear opportunity, but it provided me a platform for me to really do something different with my life and hopefully make an impact on people around me. Yeah, NCAD has been incredibly impactful for me as well. It has totally transformed my career. I'm very thankful to INSEAD and the community 
Well, Mika, thank you very much for spending time with me today and sharing your candid stories about your past and your entrepreneurial journey and as an investor, how you evaluate entrepreneurs. This is incredibly insightful. It's rare to find stories like this. Thank you. Thank you, Gobi. Thank you for listening to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur. I hope you enjoyed listening to real life stories about early believers supporting ambitious entrepreneurs. Please subscribe to the podcast and post a review. Your comments will help other entrepreneurs find this podcast. I look forward to catching you at the next episode.